Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Startup Diaries podcast, brought to you by Bern Sheehan, a leading insights-driven technology recruitment business located in Manchester and London. In this episode, we have Darren Westall, CEO of Pager. Pager is a product that helps recruiters build personal brands, identify new business opportunities, track candidates, and have better conversations. Like many of the great businesses of our time, Pager started its operations in the back garden, operating out of the founder's shed. Fast forward to today, and Pager supports businesses in multiple countries and has won multiple awards. Darren, in this episode, talks us through business strategy, the importance of LinkedIn branding, the journey through acquisitions, and how it impacts culture, practical advice and insights on initial steps for setting up successful businesses, and its major challenges and setbacks. We think it's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Darren. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and the story behind Pager? Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, everyone, I'm Darren. Um, I've been in the recruitment industry for, oh, 17 years, but never as a recruiter. I'm actually a tech guy. So I started my career at a company called Broadbeam, where I got a job straight out of college as a junior developer. Ironically, I failed IT at college, but that was a different time in my life. After 10 years at Broadbeam, I worked my way up the career ladder um, and became their chief technology officer uh, across EMEA. Um, that was five years ago, to, well, last week um, at the time of recording. So Pager's been going five years. And much to my wife's dismay when I quit my job, we now work with over 700 customers, have 7,000 active users. And yeah, my wife's finally forgiven me. Pretty much me. <laughs> I was going to say, 17 years in, as a technologist in recruitment seems like a bit of a, yeah, not many people do that. You know? <laughs> I love the industry. I absolutely, you know, when you find a niche you love, it's very easy to, to stay in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying I could do a bit the job of a recruiter, but mm. actually the tech behind it is fascinating. It's the only industry that's B2B and B2C, mm-hmm. um, and that I find fascinating. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about Pager, what it does? Uh, give us a bit of sort of a, a pitch for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I took the recruitment role, a 360 recruiter, which means they do everything. They do business development, they do marketing, uh, and they do candidate sourcing. And I broke down that 360 role into four pillars, uh, personal branding, marketing, as in company branding, um, business development and sourcing and attracting. And Pager is a tool to serve all four pillars. Um, so we help recruiters become smarter and faster, more efficient across everything they do. If there's a task they do, we can automate to make them more efficient. We will. The goal is to make recruiters have more conversations. Awesome. Well, do you think out of interest then that you being a, a technologist really helps you build this business and make it a success? Yeah, absolutely. So there's normally the salesperson that starts the business. Um, and what I've seen in so many cases is that fouls because they outsource the building of the MVP and they spend a lot of money building the MVP. And then when it actually comes to market, they realize that it doesn't quite suit the needs. Mm. And they then need to go back and adapt the tech, which costs them even more money. And they haven't budgeted for that because they thought what they were building was the right thing. Uh, in my case, I built it myself largely. Mm. Um, so I was able to quickly change things. As I met customers, as people said, oh, I wish it did this, I wish it did that. It was very easy for me to go away and build those features very, very quickly. Mm. Um, and it also put our support to the next level because most people will then have to raise a ticket, put it through a project manager, product manager, and eventually at the other end will come this feature. There were times when I spoke to a customer that day, I went home and built the feature that night. You know, that's how passionate I was about the business at the start. So without that technical knowledge, without mm. being able to build the product myself, I think it would have slowed us down dramatically. Or if we got product market fit wrong, which we did at the start, just to be blunt, we did, mm. and we weren't able to adapt as quickly, I don't think we'd be here today. Yeah, we get a lot of sort of differing opinions on outsourcing tech 
you know, MVP builds. We've had someone we recorded earlier today, someone on who's very much against it. Some who've had success. It's, it seems like it's quite, it must be great to be able to just do it yourself. And it's completely game changer in that sense. Cost. Yeah, absolutely. My, my advice would be to find a technical co-founder if you mm-hmm. don't have the technical knowledge. Uh, and likewise, if you're a techie, you want to start your own business, find somebody with sales experience. You mm-hmm. need both sales and marketing and technical. You need all of those elements. And if you happen to be able to do all three, I couldn't at the start. I'd like to think I can now, but I couldn't at the start. I think that person's probably a unicorn. But if that is you and you're not starting your own business yet, just crack on and do it. You're a unique human being. Um, but yeah, I think having a co-founder that complements your skill set is one of the vital things. Yeah. Excellent. Well, what do you think the key differences are then between being sales-led and product-led as a business? Yeah, absolutely. So we're very much sales-led as a business. Um, I think we're around 15 salespeople in the business. And as we look at new territories, we're, we're exploring how do we get there without feet on the ground, right? So sales-led businesses, really you're building your your marketing and your, your products to serve the buyer. When actually, if you flip that around for product-led growth, you need to be serving the end user which is a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. So if you take Pager, for example, the buyer will be the CEO of a recruitment business or the marketing director. They want to see how it serves their their reporting, for example. How does it help me to be more efficient? The user on the other end just wants to have the efficiency straight away. So they want to be able to sign up to the product, use it, and get those efficiencies and build a business case internally that they then take higher up to be signed off. Mm -hmm. So it's flipping it around. For me, sales-led is very much top-down sales, which I love, I enjoy it. Product-led is about not even sales, it's about driving the user of the, the product to then have an internal business case to drive adoption. So it's very, very different. I've chosen sales-led. Mm-hmm. Um, it's served us well. But as we look at new territories, when we look at the US and Australia, mm-hmm. I don't particularly want to be having calls with salespeople in Australia at uh, 6 a.m. So we are exploring product-led growth as part of that. And I'm quite excited by that. It's going to be an interesting change. Are you mostly just UK-based at the moment or you, when it comes to your Clients. We are, as a, as a company, mm-hmm. we're all based in the UK, but we do have clients across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pager can be used anywhere that's English speaking, which mm-hmm. is pretty much uh, everywhere. We're quite lucky in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as we scale headcount internally, we are looking at ways where it doesn't necessarily need to be people, but it can be process, um, which is far more scalable than people. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, I think one of the things picked up about yourself is your LinkedIn brand is it's, well, it's impressive. You take it very seriously. I'd love to understand you as a technology leader. Why, why do you focus on getting that brand out there? So at the very start, it was because nobody knew me or the business, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, I'm lucky to work in a sector. I say lucky. I, I chose to work in this sector and I worked in it for a long time. So I have the understanding of what the product needed to be. But actually, as a techie, my day-to-day at, um, at Broadbeam was staring in front of a black screen coding. Right? <laughs> when people came to the office, they didn't really turn right into the technical department to introduce us. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it came to starting the business, I thought, right, the first thing I need to do is actually have some sort of presence. Um, and we were bootstrapped for a long, long time. So you needed to look and go, right, what can I do on a budget? And actually the answer is build your personal brand, invest in that. So I, I realized pretty soon that LinkedIn was where all of my buyers were. And if I could be the voice for marketing, if I could be the voice for recruitment technology, build my brand around that, that's a good way to reach many, many people without having to pick up a phone. If I'm being blunt, picking up a phone scared the living shit out of me yeah. when I first started the business. Um, I'm hopefully some techies listening that think, yeah, I can never do a cold call. I didn't for at least a year, um, but we absolutely grew the business through my LinkedIn presence. Uh, and now it's something I religiously do. Like I would invest time in that every single day. 
Um, make sure you're adding value and you'd be amazed at the results, the inbound leads, the good conversations. I've had it where I've been in a lift, literally just in the lift in the building. Someone's got, oh, Darren from Pager. And I'm like, yeah, saw me on LinkedIn. So it's incredibly powerful. Uh, and for technical founders, if you don't want to pick up the phone, I get it, but you can invest in LinkedIn. You have so much value to add. Mm -hmm. It's just about giving that value away and building your brand. Is there any sort of starting tips to give someone on LinkedIn to get that process going and get, get out there? Yeah, number one, get over yourself. Um, so I was convinced that when I do my first video, people were going to comment saying, you lazy-eyed fat bastard, why have you put that on LinkedIn, right? Yeah. It didn't happen. Yeah. It was only my mum saying, great video, right? right? But after a while, you get over that and realise that, that people just want other people to succeed. People want yeah. people to do well. Mm -hmm. So when they see you posting on LinkedIn, they want to interact. If you add value, they will comment. Don't worry about what you look like. Don't worry about what you think people are going to say likelihood is all in your head mm. um, and it took me a while to get over it but now i have i record video pretty much every single day right. i'm on this podcast doing yeah. this you know and it was a blocker so get over yourself mm. um, and you'll be amazed at the results you need to invest time in it it's not going to happen overnight you want to invest at least three months before you start thinking right did i get anything from that did i get a return but once you do you, you will see the results and there's only so many people you can call in a day mm -hmm. you can reach thousands and thousands of people on linkedin mm. Awesome. Awesome. That's some good advice. I appreciate you sharing that. I think one of the things that I really like, really want to dig into is that I know you've gone through Series A funding. Mm. Um, love to understand what that experience was like, what the challenges were, and any advice you can get for those companies that are ramping up towards Series A. Yeah, I think the best thing we did were we were bootstrapped for a very long time and profitable. So for me, the best businesses are ones that you can actually see if you scale, you can be profitable at the end um, I think a lot of the issues we're in right now is because a lot of businesses they saw success as raising money mm -hmm. uh, and that's come unstuck when they can't raise any more because what, what are you going to do when the mm -hmm. money dries up right so for me if I was doing it again I'd do exactly what we did I'd start building your business bootstrapped put the time in put the effort scale it to a point where you think right now I've got product market fit I know my sales model I know how to deliver customers we're getting testimonials we're getting renewals we're in a really good place. Mm -hmm. And that's when you're adding fuel to the rocket ship rather than trying to build the rocket ship as you go. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really hard and also expensive. You're gonna give away way more equity. So if you can follow the same pattern, I really would recommend it. And um, But it also means you can be more picky when mm -hmm. it comes to raising. You don't need them, you want them. It's a very mm -hmm. different, different scenario. Um, so yeah, I, it enabled us to find good people, good investors, I don't even mind naming them. Uh, Knight Capital, uh, based out of the Netherlands, really great people, um, and I spoke to a lot of people. Right. So, <laughs> when it comes to when you're in that position, when it's a want not a need, you're just in a much stronger position to find the right people because you're going to be talking to these people monthly. They're going to be in board meetings with you. They're going to be the one challenging you. You need to have the respect for them. You need to want to work with them. Uh, so, my advice, if you can, is want it, don't need it. Okay, that's interesting. I think we hear a lot of similar stories. And, and sometimes, yeah, I think people go for it quite early and they don't think about the bootstrap. I think at the moment as well in the current market, it's mm. a lot harder to raise and people want to see that route to profitability or profitability before they get that funding through. So you seemingly have done, done the right thing. Yeah, you. definitely. And, and we didn't have a choice, right? I didn't want to go out and raise. So I had, I had family to, to support. When I left my job, mm -hmm. it wasn't like it was just me. Um, I had one child and another child on the way. Um, which I didn't know about when I handed my notice out. <laughs> so about two weeks after the notice went in, I found out my wife was pregnant with my second child. Um, but I had no choice, right? We had to make money. We had to be profitable, mm. bills to pay. And um, my biggest piece of advice, if you're listening to this and you don't have those responsibilities, you don't have the mortgage, you don't have the kids, and you have the desire to start a business, 
just do it. Mm. <laughs> just do it while you can now. Um, because the worst case scenario is you've got to get another job. That's literally the worst case. So if you've got no responsibilities, you've got the desire, just do it. You'll learn along the way. Mm. You'll learn far more than if you stay employed for the next year, two years, and then end up regretting it because you can't actually make that jump. Yeah, I imagine finding out your wife was pregnant with your second child is definitely a focuser of the mind, right? Yeah, I mean, she basically said, can you get your job back? And I said, no. <laughs> so I, I nearly had six months to make it so I could cover the, the bills. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the big thing. Um, not so we could go on holidays or anything like that. Literally just cover the household bills. Um, and yeah, that is a really good focus. You know, it, it meant that I didn't just go to my comfort zone, which was building products. I could have sat in my room coding for months quite mm -hmm. happily. Mm -hmm. But actually, we built a basic product, took it to market, iterated on it very, very quickly. Uh, I don't think we would have done that without that news. I think I could have spent much more time coding, which wouldn't have been as beneficial. Mm -hmm. Interesting. No, that's good. One Another thing that when we were putting this together really intrigues me is that you've been through three acquisitions in your career mm -hmm. today. Are those from being in, in the business being acquired or you made the acquisitions yourself? Um, I've made a couple of acquisitions myself, only, only small, but this was more from my time as a developer. So mm. as my career um, grew over the, over the decade I was there, uh, we were acquired three times and they were different acquirers. So mm. it really depends on the person buying you and why they're buying you. So mm. are they buying you for growth or are they buying you to, to run it for profit? And it's a very different environment to be in. Um, my advice is always when that happens, see it out, stick it out, because you don't know which way it's going to go. Mm -hmm. um, so give it give it six months, give it a year, um, and then think about moving. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a bad thing at all. Mm. Um, if I look at the first time we were acquired, it gave us the, the fuel to go into the US, and that was an incredibly exciting experience, something that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. So yeah, you never know what it means, but what I would say is wait it out and see. Mm. Um, it doesn't always necessarily mean a bad thing. Uh, in some cases, it's very, very good. What do people like around you? How do they? I imagine this is when you maybe CTO of Broadbeam. Yeah. Like your team, how do they? Are they getting nervous at this point? Like, I guess there is always that kind of like, what does it mean? There's uncertainty, right? Yeah, and as a, as a leader, your job is to to make sure they they know what the future is, right? Mm. So reassure them. There will always be people that, that doubt that, um, but yeah, if you believe in the mission of the company, you need to you need to lead that ahead. Mm. Um, so which is what I absolutely I would say we did. Um, and Broadbean continues to grow throughout the acquisitions. Each time we grew and became more successful. Mm. Awesome, awesome. Um, I'd love to sort of dive into this bit as well. You mentioned that at the age of 28, you were leading a team of around 100 people. So um, I don't know the exact number, but it was it was a bit mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that? What was that, you know? It's still a you know, so it's a young age for someone to be, I guess, managing 100 people. It's, that's not too uncommon again at the same time. But what was the experience like, and how how do you develop? as a leader, kind of not necessarily on the fly. <laughs> yeah. But how, yeah, how did you develop yourself? The biggest thing was learning to dedicate. Um, one of the ways I got there was, frankly, by being a control freak, right? I was very, very good at what I did. Um, there's, a, there's a saying that um, if you want to move up internally, you need to be replaceable, which usually scares the shit out of someone because if I'm replaceable, it means I can, I can be replaced, mm -hmm. but it also means you can be promoted. Mm -hmm. So as part of that mindset shift, it probably happened about five years in for me, where I realized that I'd made myself irreplaceable because I was the only person that knew certain things. I knew how things worked. I was the go-to person in a lot of cases, which is fantastic because I've got a job for life. Mm -hmm. But it's not a job for life that involves going up the ladder. Um, so I restarted that process of delegation, realizing that the best thing you can do is put together a playbook for other people to learn from you, to grow around you. Mm -hmm. um, and once you become replaceable, you'd be amazed how much more freedom and, and strategic you can get because 
your company's job is to stick with you and grow with you. If it doesn't, you're going to leave and go somewhere else that can. Mm -hmm. um, in my case, they did, and that's why I stayed there for 10 years and ended up in that CTO position. Mm -hmm. um, but at that point, I learned the art of delegation. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I would say is probably the number one thing is don't take a thing on your plate. Instead, put together a trusted team, a smaller team. I think I had around five direct reports in the end. I think that's the maximum number any mm -hmm. leader really should have. And those five reports, they were think of them like a soldier right and an army like we went to war and that was us we were in that uh, in the trenches if you like um, but I trusted them implicitly to do the right things mm. um, and that's that's it yeah if I tried to do everything myself I would have failed miserably interesting that's probably strikes a, a chord with me as much as anyone maybe not the listeners so I'd love to dive into that replaceable aspect because how do you know when the time's right like how did you know was it that just you trusted them and you looked at the kind of the jobs that you handed out and were like yep yeah, They've got it. So mine was that I was actually frustrated that I didn't get promoted. Mm -hmm. um, and I sat back and it's very easy to blame everybody else. Right? It's very to sit there and go, oh, they, they, they didn't promote me. I deserve this, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Right? And it wasn't so I watched a video from someone called Kerwin Ray, uh, who's in Australia. Really great guy. If you follow him, think of him as the less annoying Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, very, very good guy uh, to follow. And it was his video that said it to me. And I sat there and I thought, well, am I replaceable? And I listed all the things that only I can do. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was leading the app support team at the time. So that meant that any issue that came up, any bug that came up was really on my shoulders. Uh, and I dealt with that incredibly well. But actually, if you take a step back and go, we've got this new position, this day, it is a CTO position. Does it make sense to move the guy that right now everybody in the business relies on mm -hmm. or should we hire externally? every single time the answer is higher externally. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you need to sit there and go, right, am I actually replaceable? Can I be moved up? And if you can't, what can you do to make it the case? Mm -hmm. um, and if you, like I say, the reality is if you do that and there's nowhere for you to move up to, the answer mm -hmm. is you move on. Yeah. Interesting. Sorry, it's kind of striking a call with me. So I, I don't want you to leave your company. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no thinking about how I developed to, to get that. Is there, is there like, it was a resource obviously you mentioned in the video that you'd watched is there other resources that helped you really kick on to, to get to that level from your point of view uh, there wasn't um it was really just a mindset shift <laughs> um there's two there's two sayings i got from from that guy uh Corin ray really great guy um one is make yourself replaceable two is extreme ownership um extreme ownership is very different to ownership ownership is going yeah okay yeah I'm, i fucked up it was me mm. extreme ownership is everything's your fault everything in that you've Everything you touch is your fault. So let's say there's an outage in your product um, and it was a different developer. The first thing normally what happens is you hold something called a five wires and you all talk about the process that was wrong. And eventually somebody in the room goes, all right, it was Dave's fault. Dave, Dave shouldn't release that code. Hmm. Well, no, actually, let's take extreme ownership. We've got testing in place, code reviews. Was a UAT not okay? You know, once you take that approach in your life, extreme ownership in your life, everything's your fault and you stop playing the blame game everything becomes a lot easier because you go quicker. You skip out the whole bit where you're trying to blame somebody or blame something else, mm -hmm. and you just go to the solution. And once you do that, you could save yourself days or weeks or months. Yeah, good. All right, interesting. That, that's, I'll, uh, I'll move on from that because that's obviously coming <laughs> coming down more, less for the listeners, probably more for, for, more for me. Um, love to, to, to really, actually, one thing I'd, I'd always like to ask is really, what was the catalyst for you making a comfortable jump from Broadbean? Um, to your own business, what was that final catalyst to then go, right, I'm doing it? I think you said comfortable jump. It was no. far from comfortable. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, sorry. It's point, yeah. <laughs> no, it was the, the fact that I got my dream job 
So I, I wanted to be CTO for a long time. Mm. I know I got it early in my career, but that's because I didn't go to university, right? I didn't have that four or five years. Mm. Um, so actually I did the, did the hard yards. Um, and once I got the job, I actually felt in a weird way empty because right. I wasn't working towards anything. I didn't have any goals anymore. My goal had been achieved. Yeah. And I was sitting there at the age of 28 thinking, right, I've achieved my work goals. That can't be possible. I've got so much more to go. Despite my BMI, I hope I live a little bit longer, right? So I need to I need to have a goal here. Um, and it's weird because you see celebrities and people like that where, you know, they, they are depressed. And you sit there and go, how can they possibly be depressed? They've got everything they want in the world. But maybe it's because they've got nothing to work towards. So for me, that was a mindset shift again where I was like, well, yeah. if there's nothing here, what is next? What is next? Because I was never going to go from CTO to CEO at Broadbeam. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the skill set. I didn't deserve that job, just to be clear. But I wanted to be able to get the skill set. And the only way to do that is to take the jump. So for me, it was about the next step in your career, if you want to do it, is this jump. Mm. And that's why I was so hell-bent on doing it, despite, uh, let's put it this way, everyone around me saying it was the biggest mistake of my life. Really? Jeez. Oh, like, what? I guess, how did you gear up for it then? Because you, I meant when I said comfortable, I guess you were in a comfortable job with the CTO. Not yes. not a comfortable job. I know, I appreciate <laughs> it. But how did you gear yourself? Or how did you mentally and I guess financially prepare yourself for that? Obviously, I appreciate you probably in dialogue with your wife about it. She's saying, what you're doing, you're not. Yeah, doing. I mean, <laughs> there was a, you, you give yourself a personal runway, right? Yeah. So that sort of six months to, to pay the bills was mm. very much real. If it, if it wasn't working in that time, mm. it, the answer is get another job. Mm. But I come back to what I said at the start. If, if the worst case scenario is you have to get another job, that's that's it mm. you get another job right it's not the end of the world mm. it might not be a job you like you might end even end up stacking shelves at tesco to pay the bills mm. but that's the reality right you will get another job you will continue um, and what you learn in such a small amount of time is incredible like my my personal development has come on in the last five years i probably would have taken i want to say 15 20 years to get the knowledge that i've got now yeah but, well look coming into the last two questions that we always ask What's been the biggest challenge in your career to date? Oh, biggest challenge in my career to date. Um, we've had lots of mini challenges. I'm, I'm very, oh, I keep saying the word lucky, but I've worked bloody hard. Um, it's, I guess, blessed, right? Because I've, I've done, I think I've done well for where I am. Um, probably my biggest challenge, biggest challenge in, in pager would be scaling the business without... There's people that are at the start of the journey that aren't necessarily here now. Um, and I have regrets in that way. Uh, mm -hmm. If they end up listening to this, you know who you are. Mm -hmm. um, but the people you start the journey with probably aren't always the ones you finish with. Yeah. Um, and it's not intentional, but it's the right thing for the business. And you have responsibility as the owner, as a CEO, to do the right thing for the business, despite any sort of personal affection to people. Mm. Awesome. And then finally, then, what one bit of advice would you give to someone who's starting their own business tomorrow? Um, don't do it tomorrow, do it today. Um, hurry up. <laughs> the number one thing is just concentrate on sales and marketing. Um, I'd rather you actually pre-sign deals before the product's ready because getting product market fit is the most important thing. For all you know, what you think people want, they don't want. So find that out as early as possible and adapt what you're doing. If you do it too late, it'll be the death of your business. Do it as soon as you can. No one's actually ever said do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. So I uh, actually changed the question to, to adapt to that. They were starting <laughs> it today. Uh, yeah, get moving on it. But no, awesome. Darren, thanks for joining us. Um, really enjoyed that. Thank you. I hope you did as well. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.